0: We are in a series called All Things New, uh, Living as a Child of God. And last week, I kicked it off, and we talked about identity. We have a new identity. Our identity is in Christ. And we found that if our identity is in our success or our looks or our talent or our IQ or whatever, that becomes idolatry, uh, which is not a good identity, all right? And this is what causes so many of the problems in life. We have this wrong identity concept, this wrong understanding of who we are. So this whole idea of the newness, uh, all things become new when we are in Christ, all things pass away. So if you're online, watching online, we welcome you to uh, this series, uh, the second part of this series. And if you didn't hear the first part, go back, we have that online, you can see that. So today, uh, we are going to be looking at this subject matter, living with purpose, under the lordship of Christ for the glory of God. And we're going to break that down into two parts. We're going to look at the issue of purpose, and we're going to look at the issue of lordship or authority. New purpose, new authority. Very, very important. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 28, and I'd like you to look, if you would, at verse 16 and following to the end of the chapter. And then we'll look at many other portions of Scripture as we walk our way through this. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Father, thank you for these words and others we will look at through your scriptures. May they be life-changing. May they be words that encourage our lives. We're thankful, Father, that your word will not return void. And so, Lord, we praise you for what you're going to accomplish. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Living with purpose, uh, a new purpose, living with authority, a new authority. We're going to start with living with this new purpose in in life. Um, Most people in life would say uh, that they have some kind of a purpose for living. Uh, If somebody has a a really strong purpose for living, they might say something like, "Uh, the reason, my purpose in life is to make sure that when I leave this planet, it's better than when I entered it or it's better than when I left. And that's certainly not a, not a, bad, a bad purpose. But that purpose uh, doesn't serve necessarily for eternity. It's a purpose and it's a good purpose, but it's a limited purpose. We have a totally different purpose for when, when we become, become new in Christ. Totally different pers- uh, purpose. Now again... It's not wrong to say, I want to improve life. I want to improve society. All people live with some kind of a purpose. But it's often driven by their identity. Their identity in what they consider to be almost idolatry. They wouldn't think of it that way. But they're living with this identity of success or power or money or fame or fortune or whatever. And that's sort of their purpose. And sometimes they pass that purpose on to their family and say go, goes from generation to generation that this is the, this is the objective to be powerful or to, to run the show or to be a leader, what have you. And that can become idolatry because if that purpose is not connected to eternity, then it's a very limited purpose. Jesus says that he goes out with, he has all authority is in him, which we will look at a little bit later on. But if we're driven, if our purpose in life is driven by what I would consider to be what we talked about last week, which is actually idolatry, those things that, that seemingly make up our entire lives, then we're not living with a right purpose. Sometimes we'll, we'll drive by a mansion and we'll see a, you know, a big swimming pool in, in the back if we're able to drive around or they've got a, a dock out back and they've got a, a huge uh, yacht and we'll say something like, now that's living. That's now that's living, and in some respects, that is living. All right, it's a can be a good life if that's sort of the American American dream. But is that really living? Uh, and here's why I say that: uh, almost all of those types of when we make statements like now, "now that looks like life to me" or "that's that's living," it's usually around fame or fortune or possessions. That's generally how we look at it because it is pushed at us all the time in our society. Boy, that's living. So why is it that so many of those people have the highest rates of depression, the highest rates of unhappiness, and struggle so much with life? For one reason, Proverbs says, the eyes of a man are never satisfied. And if you are driven to have your eyes satisfied, no matter what you get, it will never quite do it. It'll always be one more thing. Uh, you know, if you're worth 2000000000 billion, you'll want $3 billion. I can't imagine why, but for whatever reason, that, that's what drives people. So these things are usually at, around possessions, and it's usually sort of the American dream to have all, all this stuff. But the reason that this is not bringing genuine life and genuine purpose, it's not connected with eternity. There's not an eternal value. Ecclesiastes says that eternity is written in the hearts of men. Ecclesiastes 3.11. That's worth pondering. Every atheist, every agnostic, eternity is written in the hearts of men. Everyone knows as they enter this world, as they get older, they know there is something more for a couple of reasons, the law is written in their hearts. Uh, their conscience accuses or excuses. There are many things that testify uh, to, the, to the greatness of God. Uh, for the invisible things in the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by his power and majesty, even his Godhead, so that mankind is without excuse, Romans 1.20. So there's a lot of of things that that speak constantly to this. There's something something in our soul and our spirit that says, this is not all there is to life. And so what does it mean when we talk about living with purpose or having life? 1 John, chapter 5. He that has the Son has life. He that does not have the Son does not have life. Here's how we read it. He or she that has the big house and the yacht has life. He that doesn't have that does not have life. That's how we think. That is a temporal viewpoint of life. But God has a completely different view. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So Jesus is talking about now. He that has the Son has, has it now, has life. And this life is in his Son. And so it's having this perspective, this, this whole new perspective in this new life, this new purpose, this new understanding of what all this is about. So what it really means to live is my life is hid with Christ in God. Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you know who John Erickson Tata is. She's, uh, she dove into, a, I think, a swimming pool or a lake or something when she was 17 years old, and she broke her neck, all right? She broke her neck, became a quadriplegic. She was paralyzed from her neck down. She's been in a wheelchair all her life with little electrical things to help her move and people taking care of her. And I met somebody just yesterday whose daughter helped serve uh Johnny and says she's one of the most cheerful people in the world. Now now listen carefully. You could be one of the greatest athletes, one one of the wealthiest people, one of the most powerful politicians in the world, and he that that has this, this position or title has life. But is that life? Johnny learned early on that life, as anyone else would know it, is over. No marriage, no children, I'll be in this wheelchair. And anything like just my legs or I can't do anything. I can't feed myself I can't do anything. I'm gonna be in this situation the rest of my life. And so she learned how to paint by putting a paintbrush in her teeth, and she's painted beautiful artwork. She writes, she goes places and she speaks. And she speaks to let people know what it's like to live a life that's fully life without all the other stuff. You would never look at her and say, at least the secular world, that is life. Well, she wouldn't say being in a wheelchair is necessarily life. But she would say, Christ is my life. And I, 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 I know that my life is connected to eternity. So she has an eternal value system that changes everything regarding her attitude to the struggles that she is going through. What does it mean to be fully alive? You know, in Galatians 2.20, it says, I am crucified with Christ. Interesting statement. I am crucified with Christ. That means that I'm dead. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I'm dead, yet I I live. Yet the life that I now live... I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, that, this, is, this is the Apostle Paul writing so often with so many statements about what it means to be fully alive, to really understand what it, what it means that this life is, is very, very short and, and very temporary. And yet, when we cling to these great truths, some of which I mentioned last week, that is life because life is in Christ. And that is true, genuine life. It's interesting to note that Paul, who wrote these various letters, uh, 13 letters to various churches, here's the Apostle Paul, and here is a man that in Acts chapter 9 comes to know Christ and therefore comes to know what life actually is. He didn't know what life was prior to that, but he now knows what life is. And so Paul goes around planting churches and writing letters to these various churches, and the irony is that he is not living the life. Paul doesn't have a mansion. He doesn't have a yacht. He's a tent maker. And he's traveling around, and he's preaching on what it means to be fully alive. For Me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. But the real irony of all of it is his letter to the Philippians, where Paul is in prison. He's in prison. And please get out of your mind the prisons. If you've ever visited a prison around here, they have prison breaks. They can go play volleyball. There's usually a library Uh, you know, there's a television set, you know, all that kind of stuff. We're talking prison. We're talking rat-infested, filthy prison. Paul is in prison and he's writing to people outside of prison to tell them what real life looks like. Who's going to buy that? Who in the advertising agency would buy that? Hey... Advertising agency, you, 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 you want to know what real life is? It's being in prison, in a rat-infested prison with lousy food and knowing Christ. That's life. Now, I'm not there yet. I'll be first tell you, I'm not there yet. But it's still true. It's what God has revealed as to what life really is. Uh, when, we, when we have a completely new view... Of this new purpose, we see life very, very differently. This is why God allows us to step into His Word and step into the world of the unknown, as I've said many times. It takes you into a world that you would otherwise have no knowledge of. You would not know there was such a thing as life in Christ. And so we begin to see life, another thing that is revealed, we begin to see life as very short. We're called to redeem the time because the days are evil. We don't know how much time we have, but the scriptures will tell us that life is a vapor. Life's like a hand breath. It's like a shadow. It's like grass that grows up in the day and is gone tomorrow. And so every single day, we should be living our life with purpose, with genuine purpose, biblical purpose. And we'll see some of that a little bit later as we walk, walk through this. And so we see life as short. We also apply our hearts to Wisdom. It teaches us to apply our hearts to wisdom because we don't know how much time we have and Psalm 90 talks about the shortness of life and applying our hearts to wisdom. We think of people in Scripture that were able to glorify God in mundane matters where God takes those mundane matters, the things that just seem like nothing, and in God's economy, multiplies them. Now, you've heard me mentioned one of my favorite portions of Scripture is Joseph in prison. He's in there for a wrong reason. He certainly shouldn't be joyful. He's been accused of raping uh, Potiphar's wife and now he's in prison. That didn't happen, but here he is and he's assigned to two other prisoners, a butler and a baker. They They have a dream and they're very disturbed by their dream. They don't know what the dream means and Joseph says, why are you so sad? And I've often thought, What do you mean, why are they so sad? First of all, they're in prison. And why would you ask the question? Because you've got to be sad too. Why would you even care about them? But he does. He takes the moment to ask that question. They say, oh, we have this dream. We can't figure it out. He says, well, my God interprets dreams. He interprets the dreams. And of course, you know, he eventually gets out because he interprets the dreams and he ends up becoming the right-hand man to Pharaoh. And that takes us all the way to where we are today. The point is this. The point is this what looked like something as very mundane, when designed to glorify God out of love, God will take that and in his economy multiply it. Because I'll tell you this right now. Had he not asked that question, why are you so sad? We wouldn't be here today. We would not be here. He never would have gotten out. He never would have met Potiphar. Ten tribes, 12 tribes never would have come. But of course in God's sovereignty... He worked that out. The point is, in God's plan, in his providential plan, he wants us to look at that and say, oh, Joseph seems to think that his life counts. He seems to think that there's a purpose in his life. Even in small matters, small things, stopping by the person in, in the cubicle next to you and just thanking them for a, for a great job or their cheerful spirit, whatever, you have no idea what that's going to do when you see life as having purpose, even somebody who's in a wheelchair and can't walk for the rest of their lives. We see trials as achieving an eternal weight of glory, according to 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. And as Paul says, he says these trials are, are minor, And they're they're light. Every time I read that, I thought, Paul, how could you possibly say that your trials are light and momentary? They look pretty heavy to me. They're a lot worse than all of mine. But Paul had an eternal perspective. And that's what it means to step into the word and see what God has to say about that. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Romans 8, 18. That whole section then takes you into the new heavens and the new earth. Every single thing here is this, this eternal perspective. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 12 says, Everybody's been given a spiritual gift. And when you use that gift, God takes that gift through the power of his, of his Spirit and ministers to people that are around you. This is so powerful, this whole idea of having a new purpose, a new identity a new family, which Jim Supp will be speaking on the next couple of weeks, a, a new life. All of this, all things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. We've learned to love our enemies, which is a, something totally different than anything we'd ever think of. That just isn't in our hearts. When you go through the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is that he takes our hearts, he takes our natural inclinations and he turns them upside down. Now, there are other things outside of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus does the same thing, <clears throat> but if you go through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll say, this doesn't make any human sense at all. Why would I do that? Why would I love those who have persecuted me? Why, why, why would I live this particular way? And so what we find out is that there are a number of things that are so counter to the way society thinks. Loving your enemies. We serve in order to lead. We give in order to get. We humble ourselves in order to be exalted. We lose our lives in order to find it. We die to self. All these things that that are mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount, other portions of Scripture, is upside-down living. And the reason that God uses that is that when people in this life literally see us upside down, literally looking looking at our lives and going, "Why why isn't that your purpose? Why is this your purpose? And then they see you consistently living out that purpose, God multiplies that. God does something in a person's life. That's what happened to me when I came to know Christ. I saw somebody who had an upside down life and it made no sense to me. And that upside-down life turned me to Christ. So all of these things. So this is the life, this life in Christ. And it has to be driven by love. It was, oh, I don't know, six or eight weeks ago, I did a two-part series on the superlative nature of love. And we call it superlative because I could think it's the only virtue in Scripture that I know of that uses superlative statements, like the highest, the best, the greatest. For example, it'll it'll say, uh, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Or a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. Or um, what is the greatest commandment? To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. By this, all the law and the prophets hang. There's eight or nine, ten different places where love is mentioned in this superlative way. So in our new purpose in life, there's a whole new love, and that love comes by the power of the Holy Spirit taken into other people's lives, and it, is, it just changes everything. I remember um, Tim Keller, um, who many of you know, who is slowly dying of pancreatic cancer, and Tim is actually writing as fast as he can possibly write. I met uh, one of his executives last night at a wedding. And he says, Tim is just writing everything he can possibly get out. If he's just got another year, he's just going to write and write and write. But I remember years ago, I was listening to, to Keller uh, speak, and he talked about this little church that he had in Hopewell, Virginia. And he said, um, he said when we left... There was a room full of people, or I don't know where they met someplace, a hundred people maybe, and they were kind of saying goodbye to Keller and his wife, Kathy. And he said, what surprised me was, after all the nice things that were said, not one person said one thing about my sermons. Not one. And <laughs> that's not going to happen here. But uh, not one. He said, every single thing that they remembered had something to do with me or my wife Visiting them in the hospital, going over to, the, to their house to work out a marriage problem or a child problem. It was the, the it was the little incidentals. It was a lot of the mundane things. And here's one of the greatest preachers of today, and nobody remembered his sermons. You better not forget mine. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> so I, I look at this. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, why does God, why does God work that way? What what is this very strange economy? It seems so different than what we would normally think. Um, But the the real issue here is you cannot cannot love people with this kind of new purpose in life unless you are connected with people. We are a family. But even outside of the family, you have to be connected. I was at this... uh, Noah Smith, Eric Smith's son, um, got married yesterday... My wife and I were there and, and uh, it really you know when I've been around it, as long as I've been around, I, I had people come up to me, Pastor Mike! Now they forget that A, my memory's going, and number two, I know a lot of people. And I'm looking at this person going, I have no idea who you are, <laughs> not a clue. And what they wanted to tell me was that they grew up, you know, in RBC and the last time I saw them they were eight or something or they were in a one or they were of the youth group and now they're 27 and I'm supposed to remember them, you know, but at any rate, but here's what was really interesting. Here's what was fascinating is that um, Noah was getting married and uh, they had it at, at Eric's piece of property, I think about six or seven acres there and was out, outside. It turned out to be a very nice evening and um, But I'm sitting here looking at all the connections. People that I know are connected to this person, even though I may have had nothing to do with their lives, but this person's connected to this person, and there was a whole group of young guys sitting at a table, and they are a Bible study, a whole bunch, and Noah leads that Bible study. Well, what happened was, and and it was mentioned last night, is that when Noah was a little boy, and I can't remember how old, but he had fallen into a swimming pool, I think, or a something, a, a, some water somewhere, and he was under for eight minutes. And they basically pronounced him as dead. He went, uh, uh, when I, as soon as I found out, I raced to the hospital, and this was 28 years ago or 27 years ago. And I'm standing there watching him dance with his new bride. When I go back, and I'm thinking, he was a goner. And I remember being with Eric and his wife and the doctors just wouldn't say anything. They didn't know what was going to happen. What actually did happen to Noah is that Noah, at the age of 27 or 28, knows a hundred times more than I do about the Bible. I, and that's not an exaggeration. Probably a hundred. When I was uh, over in uh, Israel, he was with us and his dad just knows a tremendous amount about Scripture. And I, I said, hey, that city, that, that city, uh, Lachish or whatever it is. First Samuel, Second Samuel, 1 Kings 3, I know it. And I ask Eric, who just knows the scriptures, and Eric goes, oh, I'm not, par- uh, Noah, where is that city found, 1 Kings 3? And I thought, oh, bro, that's all I needed, you know? And so <laughs> what happened was, what happened was, I think when he went under, I think God raised his IQ. I'm going over here right now. (laughs) Soak myself in there for a while. but, But you don't know what it's like to have been here all these years and to see all of these connections. To see people that you did their weddings now they've grown up and they're having kids and to see people that you haven't seen in a long time, people that flew in and all these incredible stories because there was a connection. You have to have... Connection. You can't receive love or give love unless you're connected. So Jim will talk more about that, uh, Lord willing, next week. Now we're going to finish out by th- this issue of a new authority. There is a new, <coughs> there's a new sheriff in town. There's a new authority. Many people living life just think of their boss as their authority, or this person or that person, whatever. Jesus, according to Matthew, has all authority heaven and earth. Jesus is the one. Jesus, many people just think of God as being the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, when you get into the Trinity, which is incredibly deep, there is much more to it. We find that Jesus also is the creator. There is a, there is, when we talk about a new authority, remember when the WWJD, what would Jesus do? bracelets came out. uh, I don't know. Ten years ago, whenever it was, it became a kind of a very popular uh, statement. What would Jesus do? A very popular question. And I think what what people meant by it is, man, I'm I'm really stuck in this situation. I wonder what Jesus would do. Well, I'm thinking he'd probably tell a parable, which you can't do on the spot. Or he might, if you're out of food, he's just going to multiply it, which I can't do. Or he might just walk on water, which I can't do. He might raise some of the dead. So I got st- I stopped asking that question. All right. And I start asking this question. What does Jesus think of what I'm doing? Not what would Jesus do. What does he think of what I am doing? Because that now puts me under his lordship. What does he think about this dirty thought I've got in my mind? What does he think about my ethics? What does he think about my morals? What does he think about the fact that I just raised my voice at somebody? What does he think about... What does he think about that? What does he think about what I'm doing? You know, Scripture says, take every thought captive to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you're literally frisking thoughts before they enter in. You're checking them out before they ever really enter in. This is, this is a whole life growth sanctification issue. It doesn't come overnight. Fully alive does not come over, overnight. But this idea of understanding who is in authority. When Pilate started talking about authority, Jesus says, you have no authority unless my father gives it to you. There is no authority in, in the president or a prime minister. All authority, all authority is in Jesus Christ. And we really have to think that through because that makes such a huge difference in our lives. As Are we walking under that authority? Uh, every single thought, in all areas, uh, morals, ethics, everything, all authority has been given to me. You know, Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Without him, not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life is the light of men. The light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. It couldn't Grasp it. Who's it talking about there? Jesus. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the creator. Look at this. Turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1 for a moment. Colossians chapter 1. This is a glorious, glorious statement. Colossians chapter 1. I want you to look down at um, verses uh, 15 and following. Let's read this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Now just listen the way this 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 reads it it's it's just so powerful verse 15 he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn over all creation he's the preeminent one for by him all things were created wait a minute by him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things were created by him And for him, he is before all things. That's his eternal nature. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. All things hold together. There is not one loose atom. There's not one loose electron. There's not one molecule. There's not one thing that is out of place, that, that he lost it. He doesn't know where it is. Isaiah says, that he put the stars in space and, and could count all of them by name. And there are trillions and trillions. This is always designed to, gra- to get, get us to really think of the, of the vastness uh, and the power and the authority that Jesus Christ has in all of our lives and in every sing- single situation. So we must be thinking about that as we go through life. Here are a few, few texts on the subject matter of his authority. 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom, all, uh, from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. 2 John 1.6 And this is love, that we walk in obedience in his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his commands you are to walk in love. Matthew 7.24 Therefore... Everyone who hears these words, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, words of mine, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He's a wise person, not just knowledgeable, but wise. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with your whole heart as working for the Lord, not for a human master. While you're at work, You are not just working for that human master. You are working for the Lord under that human master. That makes a difference. That's what Joseph did and God in his economy multiplied. First Corinthians, this is an important one. Listen to this one. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You are bought with a price. Look at how the world just thinks nothing of sexual promiscuity. You are bought with a price. Honor God. Revelation 17, they will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. Revelation 19, on His robe and on His thigh, He has the name written King of kings and Lord of lords. He's in charge. There is a new identity. There's a new purpose. There's a new authority. A new authority. But that authority has always been. It's new in the sense that once you come to Christ, you recognize that. You recognize that authority. And he leads with that. What does this boil down to? Well, it boils down to this. Does my life reflect that? Does my life reflect that? When I get up in the morning, do I really look and say, Jesus Christ is Lord? Do I see myself as being one of his disciples? Because this whole series is sort of a discipleship series in taking us on into different realms, different and greater understandings of of who we are in Christ and what that means uh, to live that, that way. So... This all boils down to asking some questions about our own lives. We read things. We shouldn't be discouraged if we're not always living up to it. But does it reflect my life? Am am I truly a disciple? So I leave you with this. If you've never seen yourself as having a new purpose... You have a new purpose. As soon as you entered the kingdom, as soon as you left the kingdom of darkness and entered the kingdom of God's dear Son, you took on a new purpose. Your purpose was no longer, I just want to leave this world in a better place. Your purpose has an eternal purpose. I want to leave this world in a better place so that the gospel will go forward, so that many, many people will hear the good news of Jesus. That's what that really boils down to. I now have a new authority. Up to that point, I was my own authority. And maybe I resisted authority or didn't like authority. And then, Lord willing, we'll see a new family, as Jim will launch into that. But through all of this, you could be here today, maybe you're visiting or maybe you're online, and you're thinking, oh, wow, you're, 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 you're killing me. I, I, what You're talking about a new authority, a new life, a new identity. How do I get that? That's a, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Well, you don't get it by by trying to earn it, or trying to buy it, or praying harder. You, you, you don't get it that way. You get it by literally dying to your way of thinking regarding your salvation. Because probably, if you're fairly religious, your view is, as long as I live a, a good enough life, when I die, God will, will look at that and say, I'm going to let you in because you're really a good person. That isn't going to happen. Because Scripture says there's none good, no, not one. There's none. Only Jesus Christ the righteous. What you have to have, what I had to have, and what I have been given as a gift, is his actual perfection. You see, Jesus fulfilled the law for me. You could actually say Jesus earned my salvation and earned your salvation by living a perfect life which we can't live. Therefore, you could actually stand before God and say, I'm perfect Not I just did fairly well, I tried my best. I am perfect because I'm in Christ, and Christ is perfect. That's the message of the gospel. Admitting you're a sinner, admitting that you need Jesus Christ as your only hope. And if you've never done that, I would encourage you today to do that. And when you do, you'll get a new identity, you'll get a new purpose, you'll get a new family, you'll have a new authority, you'll have a new life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to open up your word and to see what you have to say about these two very important issues and I pray that not one person that is here or online would leave without realizing your great love for them and that you died for them and rose again and that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and truly pass from death unto life. Now, Father, I pray that we would leave here today after this final song and 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 really sense that we enter out into this world with a whole new purpose, a whole new authority, a whole new understanding of these things. And it's always our desire to see that you'd be the one to receive all the glory. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.